Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marcellaro, and this week my guest is Houston Chronicle Technology Editor Dwight Silverman. Dwight, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this. I'm excited, too. We have a lot in common. We're about the same age, and we write about the same stuff, and we love tech, and we're both Mac guys. So uh, this is going to be really cool. Let me introduce you to the listeners. You are the technology editor for the Houston Chronicle. Also, you manage the TechBurger website there and write about personal technology for for HoustonChronicle.com, Cron.com, and the print edition. Previously, you were the senior web producer for premium products, managing HoustonChronicle.com, the Chronicle's iPad app, and e-edition. You also worked as the social media manager and technology blogger for the Houston Chronicle. How did that go? Um, well, you know, I was, when I was doing social media, it was, it was kind of at the beginning of it. One of the, one of the things that I have kind of always done here, uh, at least until recently is because I was covering technology starting back in the nineties, um, and really early eighties, uh, I, here at the paper, I was constantly going, Hey, there's this new thing and we need to be doing it. Mm -hmm. And I would kind of bang my shoe on the desk until I got people's attention. (laughs) So like I was the one who was saying, we have got to get into blogging. We need to be doing blogging. And so when I moved over to the website, they said, okay, you be the blog editor. And then I said, I was wondering if there were any Perry white kind of guys who were going blog, blog, (laughs) what? Twitter, what? (laughs) They're, they're all Perry White, and, and then um, and then I uh, the same thing happened with social media. You know, I became aware of just how important Twitter and Facebook were becoming, and I say, okay, mm-hmm. we got to pay attention to this. And they said, okay, you be our social media manager. And and uh, what's kind of nice about the modern Houston Chronicle is that I'm no longer the the guy in the wilderness. We're pretty much a digital shop at this point, and everybody gets it. And um, and our managers get it. We mm-hmm. have a good sized uh, digital operation, and uh, and so th- those days I'm kind of just one of many now, and uh, and so it's it it's it's really nice to kind of have. I'm lucky to have been able to hang in there and and see this transition. Let's go back in time. Uh, I like to ask, uh, especially journalists, how they got started in journalism, how they got started uh, with Max. Uh, when did you know you wanted to become a journalist? How, how old were you, and how did it get started? Or did you know at that time? <laughs> well, I, I I think in the like the fourth or fifth grade, I worked on the school newspaper in elementary school, and I I wrote a. Um, uh, you know, I wrote some things for it. I had a cartoon, uh, uh, which I have no art skill at all. I'm not sure exactly how I got that gig. And, um, and you know, up through high school and college, I was uh, – I worked for the high school paper and I worked for the Daily Texan at the University of Texas. And my – what I really got into early on in my career was music journalism. It was the 70s and it was the era of, you know – the, the the high point of Rolling Stone and and mm-hmm. uh, you know I wanted to I wanted to do that so I wrote about music at uh, in Austin during the era during the Cosmic Cowboy era the rise of Willie Nelson and Jerry Jeff Walker in in uh, at that time and then um, were you my, using uh, my, personal computers in those days uh, we were using terminals I remember 
the first day I walked into the Daily Texan was the day they were installing uh, a, um, a a computer for writing and working and laying out the paper. Oh, was that the IBM Display Write thing? It was. It was something like that. It was. It was a. It was like I think it was called Atex was the name of the company. Mm-hmm. News, newspapers have always kind of had their own uh, proprietary technology like that, and this was a company called Atex, and it had an early. Um, it had an early speech to text, uh, text to speech mode, and they were testing it. And I remember walking in, and the editor of the Daily Texan at the time was Dan Malone, and I remember them testing it, and they were typing in the words "Malone sucks." And you could hear <laughs> throughout the newsroom this computerized voice going "Malone sucks." Malone sucks, <laughs> and uh, and I knew I'd found a home. All right. Uh, so, you got your bachelor's uh, from UT. Yep. And in in journalism, my first job, I was still I was doing both music writing. I got it at the Beaumont Enterprise, which is a uh, an oil town uh, just east of Houston. Beaumont. And, oh and, yeah, that's right, east of Houston. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember because I spent a summer or two in Houston. Oh, there oh, you my go. Sounds familiar, yeah. And uh, but I all but because it was a small paper, I had to do another job too. So I was both the religion editor and the rock critic for the Beaumont Enterprise, which was a was a uh, a very fun combination. One of the stories I was actually able to break nationally. There was a, a large group at the time in Beaumont of uh, Christian rock musicians, and they were all abuzz because they had heard rumors that Bob Dylan had been born again. And uh, and so I kind of worked some of the sources through that and wound up talking to uh, Bob Dylan's manager, and indeed he had – uh, had a religious awakening. Uh, he put out several uh, albums with Christian themes in that period, and I was the person to break that news back then. So that was exciting. Was that religion section imposed on you, or did you volunteer to cover that? Uh, it was my first job, and I took it because I could also write about music. You know, they wanted the person oh, yeah. who had been there before me, who I was replacing, had been an assistant entertainment editor and kind of wasn't that music focused. But what was interesting about Beaumont at the time was that they had just built a convention center there. And so even though it was a small town, they were bringing in a lot of uh, rock acts with big names like Peter Frampton came through there, Cheap Trick, um, uh, Bootsy Collins, uh, you know, just at the time, some really big name acts. And I got to cover them, meet them and, and interview them. It was great. I want to ask you a question about journalism. I've always wanted to ask somebody like you. What do you do when your editor assigns you a task that you weren't interested in? You you sort of uh, are feeling like you just can't do a good job, and you're and you're assigned something that is completely out of your realm, and you you got to go do it. How how does a journalist deal with a situation like that? It gets psyched up. You know, it's I don't know about. Other folks, I don't see you know, a lot of people grouse about it. To me, 
if you were to hand me a story that was completely out of my realm, I'd look at it as an opportunity to learn something. One of the best things about doing journalism is that it's like being in school all the time. You're, mm. if you, you know, if you're doing it right, you're learning something. And, uh, and so, you know, if, if, uh, certainly, uh, I, I have spent a lot of time working in the business news section of, um, of newspapers and, uh, and one of the things that's interesting is that you may you may have to cover for somebody else. So yes, I have done my share of mm-hmm. uh, gas pipeline stories. <laughs> uh, you know. So and, and and there's always something interesting. I mean, if you if you go into a story and you're not familiar with it, and you find some something interesting as a layman, and you focus on that, the chances are readers who are not experts in that will be interested in that as well. So that's kind of the the approach to take. I think. I think that's uh, valuable. Valuable approach. We talk about that at the Mac Observer. Every day is you learn something new. Always that's, something going on. That's know? really important. I think that's a really important attitude to have. How did you land your first job at the uh, Houston Chronicle? And I take it that was in the print, <laughs> print realm. Yes. Well, I had I had gone from the Beaumont Enterprise to the San Antonio Light, uh, and, which is now defunct. You're a uh, Texas kind of guy. <laughs> I am. Uh, all my adult life, I've been in Texas. And, um, I was, uh, and then I, I got hired away by a startup, uh, in the 1980s. Uh, that was the era of alternative news weeklies, you know, when, when, uh, essentially clones of the village voice were popping up everywhere around the country, uh, targeting baby boomers at the time. And they hired me away from the San Antonio light at the time in the San Antonio light. I was the television and media critic. And, um, it's, and then I became kind of the senior writer, uh, at, at this place called the current, the current lasted maybe about two years and they laid everybody off with a, uh, who was making a full-time salary and decided to run the place, uh, with freelancers. And I uh, survived by freelancing and working. I did a lot of work for the Houston Chronicle. They didn't have a San Antonio bureau at the time, and so I was kind of the correspondent. And eventually, they just brought me on board. Okay. Well, what was what was publishing tech? Uh, we talked about this before, but but when you got to the Houston Chronicle, were they doing something similar with terminals, or by that time yes. had they advanced yes. to PCs? It was it was still uh, mainframes when I started. Shortly after, they went to Sun terminals. Oh, You'll cool! Sun. I grew up and, on Suns. Yes, and we went. We were using Sun terminals, complete with the early laser-based mouse laser. You know, with the little red dot under it, and we had to have a. I remember we had to have a glass, a mirrored mouse pad in order for the laser thing to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was Sun Terminals, and then and then much later uh, uh, they went to PCs. But the PCs were actually running an emulated version of the Sun software when we moved to PCs. So tell me about your evolution at the Houston Chronicle. You went from print to helping build a website to helping build apps to working on social media. Kind of lay that out for me, how it unfolded and, and why you took each step. So I when I came to the Houston Chronicle, I, because I had been working out of San Antonio for the state desk, uh, I came on board as a um, st- assistant state editor, and I also was doing some writing. Um, 
but I was really, really interested in writing about technology. And when the opening came up in the business news department to write about technology, I, I uh, actually was recruited by the business editor in in 1993 and, and uh, took the job. It was cool because Compaq Computer was based here. Oh, yeah. And um, – and so I was. I got to cover Compaq when it became the biggest computer company in the world. And uh, but at the same time, and Tim Cook uh, started there, right? And Tim Cook, right? I, I never met him. I had heard his name, but I'd never met him. And um, and so, but you know, while I was also here, we had the the beginning, the rise of the internet, and uh, and I was covering that as well. In 1995, the Chronicle launched um, a uh, uh, launched both a website and we went online with Prodigy, which was, if you remember, what was one of the three big uh, um, you know networks that were like America Online and CompuServe, right. and uh, and we were only with Prodigy for a year, and then after that, we dumped Prodigy and went strictly to the web. And by and I was actually on one of the committees that um, uh, that was formed to kind of create our online presence. Uh, I didn't Is stick that with Cron. it. Cron.com? Uh, that started out as cron.com that was that's the uh that's the first that was our first incarnation um in 2000 i went to work full-time on the web i started as the online news editor uh then became the blog editor then social media manager the whole time i was still writing my uh, computing column uh until about 2013, 2012 or 2013, when I just couldn't do both anymore, and so the column was suspended. But um, in in the earliest days, one of the reasons I became really interested in wanting to work on the web is that I was seeing where it was going because I was covering it, and I realized, you know, this was our future, and I wanted to be a part of it, not just write about it. So what, what's it like today working at the newspaper? Do you still have a desk in an office, and or do they force all the editors to work out of the house? <laughs> oh, you know, newspaper editors and owners are have long been control freaks, and you know they want you in the office, and to a certain extent, it's a really collaborative process. So I think it's it's good to have FaceTime, but but uh, and water you know, coolers. Huh? And, and water, water coolers. That's right. That's right. Although here <laughs> instead we have we have a Starbucks machine. Uh, One of the things that happened also in 1995 was that the Houston Post, which was the other big daily newspaper here, uh, was shut down, and the Chronicle bought its building and presses. And uh, in 2015, we actually moved into the building. We sold the downtown property, moved into the building, but it was built as a digital operation designed that way and and completely renovated it's it's really a beautiful state of the art facility and most importantly we have uh Starbucks machines on everything <laughs> cool well there's a lot more to talk about and I have many more questions but it's time for a short break folks I'm chatting with Dwight Silverman of the Houston Chronicle we'll be back in 60 seconds after this commercial break stay with us hi this is John Marchalera with the Mac Observer Today, our sponsor is Keeps. Losing hair is not good, and two out of three guys will experience hair loss by the time they're 35. I want to introduce you to Keeps, the easiest and most affordable way to keep the hair you have. These FDA-approved products used to cost so much, but now thanks to Keeps, 
They're finally inexpensive and easy to get. Starting at just $10 a month, you'll never have to worry about hair loss again. Key advantages? First, getting started with Keeps is so easy. Sign up takes less than five minutes in the privacy of your home. Just answer a few questions, snap some photos of your hair. Step two, a licensed physician will review your information online and recommend the right treatment for you. Then it's shipped discreetly right to your door every three months. Three, Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. Some of you already have tried them, but you've probably never gotten them for this low price. Keeps is only 10 to $35 a month. Plus, now you can get your first month free. That's a good deal for getting to keep your hair. To receive your first month treatment for free, go to keeps.com slash BGM. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash BGM. And thanks, Keeps, for being our sponsor. We are back. I'm chatting with Houston Chronicle Technology Editor Dwight Silverman. So one of the questions that was bugging me during the first half of the show, uh, I've been burning to ask you now, you worked on these mainframes and terminal systems. How did you get into the Macintosh? <laughs> oh, that's a good story. So um, uh, back in the, the earliest days of when I was writing about technology, my emphasis was on uh, consumer tech, and I was doing a lot of reviews of uh, hardware and software. I reviewed one of the first uh, IBM, then they were called IBM compatible machines that had full multimedia with a built-in um, audio uh, audio card and a CD-ROM drive. Those were in, had been in Macs for a while, but they hadn't come uh, as easily to the PC world. And so I was pretty much a Windows guy. I was, you know, I was reviewing Windows machines, and occasionally I'd look at a Mac. But when um, you became when uh, Apple switched to Intel processors, two thousand five, in there, yeah. right around that time period, I became very interested in the, in the Mac because I could run both platforms on one machine if I wanted to, uh, either with Boot Camp or um, uh, software like Parallels. And so You've I... You've written a book about that. Yes. yes running Windows on your Mac. Running Windows on your Mac. Yeah. I, yes, which is horribly out of date now, but it was, it was a very exciting thing to do at the time, so I wrote a book about it. And um, and so I first I got a uh, I got a, a a MacBook. Remember if you remember the black MacBook, which was probably one of the sexiest machines Apple's ever made. Oh, the black plastic G three. Yes, right. MacBook. Yeah, I had yeah. one of those. Well, it wasn't a G three; it was Intel. It was an Intel. Oh, there was a and, name for that machine. A cute name. I forgot uh, what it, it was. Well, it was it was awesome. And uh, and I liked it so much that then when uh, it came time for me to uh, get a new desktop, I went ahead and got uh, one of the early 24-inch aluminum iMacs. Um, and uh, and from from there on out, I was uh, I was an Apple guy. And and essentially, it was that it was the the uh, adding the ability to run more than one operating system easily. Uh, that made me want to get a Mac because I couldn't do the reverse on a PC. So all along at the Houston Chronicle, you were in love with Macs. Were you able to use the Mac for all your 
web publishing and social media stuff. Did it work with the Houston Chronicles workflow? Well, we use my on, on my desk uh, uh, here is a PC. I have a uh, uh, I have a Windows PC, so I still use that day to day. But when but I can grab my Mac and hop on our network. You know, I, I keep my MacBook Pro with me. I can grab it, hop on a network, and uh, and use it just as I would anything else. So it's pretty much seamless. What kind of MacBook Pro do you have? You have a, one of the touch bars. Uh, I, no, I have actually an older one, and uh, it is a let me bring it is a uh, mid twenty fourteen. Um, it is one of the you know wonderful things about uh, Macs is that they last forever. Oh yeah, and this has been you know I'm running the latest version of Mojave, and. Uh, my wife has one of the Touch Bar uh, uh, MacBook Pros. She has not been plagued by the keyboard of death problem, but uh, yet, yeah, but it's you uh, she it clean. Runs, you're okay. Yeah, well, and she does. She's she actually runs her whole business on it. So um, she's uh, uh, you know she loves hers. I, this is you know this is very fast. It has a, a an SSD in it. It's it's got a fast processor. Uh, it's got a core i5 processor in it, and I, I just have I, I have no desire to, to upgrade. And I kind of like old Macs. I, you may have read I did something recently about um, the whole, you know, looking back on uh, the comments that Tim Cook made about people not upgrading their iPhones as much. The same is true, I think, of Macs. People just don't have uh, a lot of uh, compulsion necessarily to upgrade to the latest and greatest. So on my desktop, I have a, a 2012 Mac Mini, the last one that's fully you know, user upgradable. It's a Core i7 processor. I put two SSDs in it, and it it uh, is as fast as I need, and it does anything that I need it to do. The only thing I wish it would do that it won't is I can't unlock it. Uh, I you know I can't log into it with my Apple Watch like I can on my <laughs> on my MacBook Pro. But other than that, it does everything that I need it to do, and uh, and and you know until Apple won't update that the software on the the 2012 Mac Money Mini, I'm going to keep it. So you also wrote a book called Running called Switching to the Mac, No Problem. Yes, is that still current? Uh, no, the, that has not been updated. I, I wrote three books in a row really quickly in the 2010-2011 time frame. The first I co-wrote with uh, Larry Maggot, who's a, a longtime, uh, also a veteran tech writer. Uh, I, I, my first book was a Vista book. And, uh, you know, I know, I know. I know. I'm just trying to hold my laughter back. <laughs> no, no need. <laughs> no need. You know, fortunately, you know, Larry had written several books, and so it was kind of just basically training wheels for me to learn how to do it. And then the second one was running Windows on your Mac. And then the third one right behind that was um, – was the uh, uh, Windows switching to a Mac no problem. And this was part of a series that the publisher at the time, I believe it was Wiley, planned, uh, but it None of the books sold because this was the beginning uh, of the end for the computer book era. You know, yeah, I had Maria Langer on the show last year. She she was a big time print publisher um, of uh, Macintosh books and technology books, and it just got, as she described it, to be too tough to keep the print books up to date. Right. 
Right. Right. And because, you know, you can find the information you want with a quick Google search on the web. You know, yeah. it's very it, it is essentially rendered uh, technology books obsolete. And um, so the other thing happened, though, is that I was working and writing at the office all day and then coming home and writing on nights and weekends to do these books it took a toll on my health and my time with my family. And so I, you know, I kind of saw the writing on the wall and, and, and quit trying to do that after that last one. Tell me about um, some of the things you're doing on the side about the development of technology bites, the Colin show and uh, the Tech Burger subsite. And so, twit? tell me about all that. All right. So, um, uh, Technology Bytes was a radio show that ran, um, oh, I think it ran like 15, maybe run as much as 20 years. Um, and uh, the, the creator of it was a guy by the name of Jay Lee, who actually still writes a a helpline column for us uh, in our Sunday uh, on our Sunday tech page, um, and uh, it was a call-in show where people called in and got actual radio help. show or in actual the- radio show. Yes, okay. and uh, it ran on KPFT, KPFT which yeah, right, right, the, right, the Pacifica station here, and um, and he, I signed on with him in. Uh, uh, I forget exactly when, maybe around 2010 or so, and I did it for about four or five years, uh, and uh, and then decided I, yeah, I had to be there for two hours every Wednesday night, and I I just decided I needed more 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 time for myself. I wanted my Wednesday nights back, so I I left the show, and then uh, shortly afterwards, Jay decided to call it quits too, and he'd been doing it for a long time. What was really interesting about that show is, if you go back and and find some archives for it and. Listen listen to it each one is kind of each each year is kind of a you know the questions all relate to what's happening in technology then and and the, the questions morphed from you know pcs uh and and macs early on to smartphones and internet issues later on and although what was funny is we would still like once every month or so get somebody calling up uh, even you know towards the end at needing help with their uh, dial-up modem <laughs> you know, there was always like some ancient hardware that somebody was trying to uh, that somebody was trying to keep alive, and and that that was kind of fun. It, it certainly challenged our memories. Well, that was a thing, you know, in the distant past, a decade or two ago. People went to mugs and asked questions and had presentations and meetings. They still do that, but it's not quite as popular. And right. they would call in on radio shows and ask computer questions. I imagine that's one of the reasons why. It came to a close. Uh, Stein's Law. Michael Shermer told me about Stein's Law. Things that can't go on forever don't. So, <laughs> yes. yes. So well, there's uh, still a few, like like Leo Laporte still does the tech guy. Yeah. You know, so there, yeah. There's Is still that a call-in format as well? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Cool. Cool. You're still doing that. Um, I'm still doing This Week in Tech with him. Uh, I, in fact, I'm going to be on this Sunday. Uh, and um, he, uh, I'm on like every six weeks. And now it's gotten to the point where there actually is like a Twit wiki. And you can go and see uh, who's been on when. And I'm now like one of the most frequent guests. You know, others have kind of fallen off over the years. So just um, uh, it's, it's really funny to go there and see all the ones I've been on, I look at that and go, well, did I do all that? <laughs> it's a great and way to then, learn is to explain yes. things to others. And then, and then you had asked about Tech Burger. Tech Burger began 
um, uh, when I uh, quit doing the uh, quit managing the the premium site HoustonChronicle.com, one of the things that we thought about doing here was focusing on um, highly vertical topics, and they wanted me to try doing a, a technology vertical um, and see what I could do with it called Tech Burger. And uh, the the name came about because my the my boss asked me to submit a whole bunch of names, and I just threw Tech Burger on there as a joke because I well, like the Texas. Sound of it. What else would it be? That's right. Well, yeah, or Tech Taco <laughs> maybe. And um, but but she liked it, and as we as we dropped the others away, we decided to keep it. And one of the fun things on it is that I have a section on the site where our uh, food critics uh, post their burger reviews. So um, it, we actually do have burgers on Tech Burger. Uh, I'm still doing it. I don't update it as often as I'd like, but one. But I, uh, my primary job at the moment is I manage uh, the, uh, the business news websites and social media accounts for the Chronicle, and then I write um, – uh, uh, about technology when I have the time, and then I also keep Tech Burger alive. And uh, and then one of the nice things about doing that is I can pull from all aspects of the Chronicles technology yeah. company. So we have um, our energy writers do a lot of writing about the technology of energy, and so those will go on there. We have obviously have a, a space writer who covers NASA, and a lot of her stories go on there. So it's it's actually kind of a very well rounded. Uh, a selection of stories about technology of all types. Speaking about writing about technology, one of your articles recently really lit me up. On January 25th, you wrote, The Golden Age of Streaming is About to End. And I referenced it in my Friday column, Particle Debris, and had some thoughts to add to it. But it's a really great article, and it's a, it's an important article. Uh, explain to us the basis of these of the article and the streaming sites and what's happening with them. So one of the things that, you know, I think uh, cord cutters have been able to say is that, is that um, you know, when you, when you want to, to, to watch something, while you, don't, you no longer have the convenience of a cable company and its, its grid and its software kind of pointing you to the things you want to watch and organizing it for you, you know, at the very least, there are repositories of content and shows and movies that you can go to and count on stuff to be there. So Netflix, of course, has a not only its, its incredible amount of original and uh, overseas programming, but it also has a lot of classic television. So does Hulu. Uh, but what is about to happen is that a lot of the studios and a lot of the creators of content and um, – and, and some of the gatekeepers, such as CBS and NBC and so forth, are creating their own streaming services. And they are not renewing uh, with Netflix and some of these other sites. Is that a financial the, thing? Because the ability they can collect more money? Uh, yes, they can do it directly. They um, they also can keep their brand in front of consumers. You know, one of the things when you're looking at something on on uh, if you're looking at The Office on Netflix, you don't really know that's an NBC show or was an NBC show. And, um, and why so do they, they care that we need to care? <laughs> uh, ego to a certain extent. <laughs> yeah. and, and and also, you know, when you see something when you see The Office on Netflix, there's no ads. 
Right. So, you know, NBC, uh, you know, will will pull it back and uh, and have uh, an ad based um, uh, streaming program, a streaming uh, channel under the auspices of its NBC Universal Comcast operation. Uh, and 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 so what's going to happen is ultimately Disney is, is is probably the biggest player that's breaking out its own stuff and is pulling back uh, its complex. Disney Plus, and you know Disney owns uh, the Star Wars franchise. Disney owns uh, and and also Lucas Arts. Uh, it owns Marvel now, uh, and, as well as others. And so, a lot of the content that's spread around on other platforms is all going to be concentrated at uh, at Disney Plus. So, if you want to watch something, uh, you are going to have to go. And subscribe to the uh, streaming service uh, of the company that owns it, as opposed to going to some place like Netflix or um, or Hulu or any of the other kind of aggregators. It doesn't sound and, like a good deal for consumers having to subscribe to all these different services to cover your interests. That's correct, and it is going to be, um, uh, you know, it. It's it's essentially going to kind of take it back to a certain extent of the way it was uh, in the early cable days because what will happen is if you want to if you want access to all this content you're going to end up spending about as much as you do on cable and uh, you know for years people have been saying oh uh, we should unbundle cable so that people can choose what they want and cable companies were saying well you can't afford to do that and now we're about going to find out that yep that actually is true hmm. so what do you think the outcome is going to be in the end in my article i predicted that what would happen was that people would provide pushback and there would be only three or four winners and the others would fail because the winners would garner most of the audience what, what, do, you think, I, what do you see happening I think that that is probably a a true scenario, particularly when you look at what's happening with Disney. And, uh, you know, they not only are they, you know, are they, you know, pulling back their content, but they continue to buy up these big franchises that people want to watch, like Marvel and Star Wars. And so, uh, you know, these things will be concentrated in, uh, in, in a handful of folks, and you'll have to go in and, and, and pay for that. So I think your, um, your scenario is correct. In the earliest days of television, before um, cable, uh, and even somewhat after cable, what you had was you had kind of a, a, a set pattern of the way um, movies, particularly movies and television were shown. So you would start out with a movie on the theater. And then after a certain number of years, that movie would be shown once on a network in the evening. And then it might go into syndication where it would be shown, you know, more frequently on local stations or on regional stations. The same thing is true with television series where they start out on their, um, where they start out on their home network and then they get syndicated. And I think what you may see is something happening like that. So you may end up seeing some of these shows later come back to Netflix or Hulu or, or whatever they are. And, um, but it will be like years later. Um, and, you know, they, they won't be fresh anymore, but people will watch them out of nostalgia. That said, 
a lot of these companies want understand the value of nostalgia and know that these older shows are popular. And so they may indeed hold on to them, and, and you won't ever have this kind of cascading down to smaller channels as time goes on. How do you think Apple's going to do in breaking into this business? <sighs> That's a hard question. Um, <laughs> you know, I, know, I am it's not, a hard business. It is a hard business. I, one of the things I have, in the time that I have been covering technology, I have seen a lot of companies stumble trying to go into businesses that that are not their core. Um, and one of the things that I think is concerning me with Apple is that you know as as much as as people who use it love it, the Apple TV is not the leading streaming box. And it is, you know, a lot of people, a lot of critics who use it say it's not as well done as it could be. And um, and so Apple, when it got into music, had the iPod as a driver. And they were there at the right point in the era of streaming music with the hardware that made it work well. Right. Um, you know, the Apple TV has been out there for a while, and I'm not convinced – that doing a streaming service tied to that hardware is going to be enough to pull people away at a time when the competition is getting more and more intense for that dollar. Now, I've heard, I've heard rumors that it's going to be free on Apple hardware. Well, yes, and and but I'm not sure how long that would last, and um, and and the content also has to be good enough to uh, to compel people to 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 want to watch it. So, you know, they've been hiring all of these big name uh, content creators um, that have cachet, but often what happens is the really good stuff gets done by small-time content creators who are creative and agile. So on Netflix, for example, look at Stranger Things. You know, that's that was not done by like Steven Spielberg. It was done as an homage to Steven Spielberg to a certain extent, but it was very creative and it was fresh. And uh, but it was not done by somebody with big names. And when you get big names playing, it's kind of you know the innovators' dilemma. They get so big, they 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 can't move fast. They went their own way too. They Tim Cook has some specific too. ideas, right. along with uh, Eddie Q about the quality and the family and the values of the shows. And, and I think, um, you know, there may be a niche for that, but um, uh, that, that may be, you know, what Apple ends up getting relegated to. I, I, and all this said, I think that um, there, things are shaking out enough and it still is early enough that, that all of this is speculative and it could go anyway. Yeah, the way I look at it is Apple has 1.3 billion iOS devices out there, and and uh, NBC Universal has zero except for their cable modems. So yes, but don't don't underestimate that because one of the things they're doing is they're making sure you can watch their content on your iOS device. You know, it's it's and something which is something that Apple has enabled. Yeah, but Apple so. controls that gateway too. You know, they can steal the 30 percent. They can and make life difficult for for any other player and give their stuff away free. Yeah, but but you got to want to watch what's free. Yeah, you that's know, why there's so much good. emphasis on the quality of these shows. We we hear rumor right. after rumor about how they're really stepping up 
the, the quality of these shows. They have to, otherwise Apple will get a black eye for producing junk. Well, and, and what they think of as quality, something that's really slick and soulless may not catch on. That's kind of the, you know, then, then again, you know, uh, Disney has done that for years. And I don't want to say Disney is soulless, but it's family safe and, uh, and smart. And, um, uh, so, you know, if, if, uh, can Apple compete with Disney on that ground? That will be really interesting. Yeah, that's a good question. And with that question, which will have to remain unanswered, <laughs> you know, we are out of time. So we're going to have to bring it to a close. That's been a fascinating discussion. It is. And, and, uh, and I've enjoyed having it with you, John. This is a great podcast. Yeah. Thanks for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me. F- folks, um, oh, before I forget, tell the listeners how they can contact you. Um, the best way to reach me is uh, through my uh, Houston Chronicle email address, which is Dwight.Silverman at Cron, C-H-R-O-N.com. You can also tweet me at DSilverman on Twitter, and, uh, and I'm on Facebook. Just search for my name. All right. Great. Thank you again. Thank you. Listeners, I'm really glad you came by, and I hope you enjoyed the show with Dwight Silverman. You've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week. Mm-hmm.